home is the place that offers you security and peace of mind. And Damascus, when I think about it right now, it makes me really anxious. To, to me, the country is triggering. So I don't have that urge to go back anymore. Like, how can I long for a home that never gave me any of my rights? I wish Damascus gave me what London gave me. I used to say that I am uprooted because I left my home country. But now I would like to say that I have roots in many places and one of them is London. You're listening to Asylum Speakers, the podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those with lived experience of displacement and the people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome back to what was the Worldwide Tribe podcast, but we've got a new name, Asylum Speakers, a name that hopefully represents the purpose and the essence of this podcast even more clearly than our previous name. And today we're kicking off season six with an absolute bang. I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest for this episode. He is someone that I have wanted to host on the podcast since the very beginning. And I think it's safe to say that he's a bit of a celebrity in this space. Syrian filmmaker, activist, and most recently author, Hassan Akkad. Hassan is the very first person that I actually ever heard speak about their experience leaving Syria firsthand, and it had a huge impact on me. Not only has Hassan shared his incredible story through talks and at events, he actually first became known for filming his journey from Syria to the UK. And his iconic, very powerful footage was shown on the BBC documentary Exodus back in 2016, for which he won a BAFTA. Since then, Hassan's passion and dedication to telling his and other important stories has taken him all over the world, including to his local hospital, where he worked as a cleaner during the pandemic. In September last year, Hassan published his incredible memoir, Hope Not Fear. I read it in a couple of days, and even though I thought I knew Hassan's story, it absolutely blew me away. In today's episode, we talk about his journey, his book, uh, how candid he was in it, who he didn't want to read it and why. And at the end, he tells the story of the beautiful reunion that he recently had with his family after many years of not being together. Hassan came over for dinner with my mum and dad and foster brothers and we recorded this episode just after. So you can hear them tidying up in the kitchen and then watching the football in the background. Pretty typical evening in this house. Listen out for when there were goals. (laughs) 
But before we get into it with Hassan, I'm absolutely buzzing to introduce you to the sponsor of this season of the Asylum Speakers podcast. This is our first ever sponsor because I really wanted whoever we work with to align with the values of the podcast and feel like a natural and authentic match. And I'm so glad that I held out. I couldn't believe in the work of this creative social enterprise more. So the sponsor of this season is Love Welcomes. And to tell you a little bit about what they do, they employ women with refugee status right here in London and internationally to make beautiful products such as homewares, table settings and perfect gifts. I know you guys will absolutely love their magical brand because not only are you buying stuff that you would actually want anyway, you can be safe in the knowledge that purchasing from them directly supports sustainable employment for displaced women. Rather than me tell you, it probably makes sense to hear this from one of their team members. I was lucky enough to visit the Love Welcomes workshop in London recently and meet all of the team, one of whom, Kemi, told me the following. The truth is, this is the first organisation that shows us love as being a refugee. Not thinking about your background or where you come from, or your religion. Uh, it's the first organisation that cares about refugees, women entirely. In the UK, the first one that fuel our pains and make us feel like somebody. Make us feel as if there's really love in the UK. So if you would like to shop the products that Kemi and the team at Love Welcomes make, check out their website, lovewelcomes.org, and you can use the code WWT in all caps, that's WWT standing for Worldwide Tribe, for 10% off. Now, let's hear from Hassan. I appreciate you so much of for course. coming here. No, no, for no, no. This. When you said, when you gave me the options of coming home, I said, no, definitely coming. It makes me really happy yeah, really because <laughs> for me, it's always really important when I have an interview with any guest that we've like shared food somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and when I was living in London, that would have been easier for you. Yeah. But yeah, like now I know that it's a bit of a mission, but yeah. I appreciate it. No, it was easy. Yeah. It was an hour and we got to share food, which is great. Yes, it's important, <laughs> yeah. right? It's yeah, my yeah, biggest yeah. joy in life, yeah. truly. We have a saying. Gosh, we have a saying for everything. But um, if you want to say that someone is close to you, you say, uh, which means there's bread and salt between us, which means that we're very like connected. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the same, I think it's the same idea of eating together, breaking bread, I which, feel which yeah, brings people closer, I guess. I really feel yeah. that. I could talk about food for hours and hours. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I guess what I want to talk mostly about today is the fact that you recently published this amazing memoir. Thanks. And it really blew me away to, to read it. I just encourage everyone to read it for a start. So let's not tell the whole story today. Yeah. But it does start with your life in Damascus, right? Yes. And yeah. your very beautiful life with a loving family and a great job that you enjoy. Then we really kind of go with you on this journey as things start to, to, to change. And yeah. I really felt that. I really felt like I was kind of with you and in your shoes, like as that was happening. And I'd love it if you could maybe just give a little bit of an overview of kind of how things did start to change and what happened um, for you to leave Syria. Sure. So I had a pretty normal life before things started to change. Um, I... I was quite privileged. I come from a middle-class family, so we lived in a really nice apartment in downtown Damascus. My dad had a pizza restaurant, and I had my own car, and I had a really good job teaching English. I had a lot of good friends. We used to go on road trips and go to gigs and party, and uh, life was pretty normal, 
and amazing at the same time. On the surface, almost every Syrian had a comfortable life, but politically speaking, Syria was run and still is run by a dictatorship, uh, and, and it has been under a dictatorship for the past 40, 50 years. Things changed in 2011 when the Arab Spring started in, 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 in North Africa, and, uh, and then the protests started in Damascus and Syria. Everyone took to the streets because they wanted to change, and I wasn't too bothered because, again, I had a comfortable life. But things changed for me when I saw that the secret police had arrested six kids who had written on the walls of their school. People wanted the downfall of the regime, which was the slogan of the Arab Spring back then. And they tortured them. And I, I, that really stuck with me because I was a teacher. And I, for some reason, I thought of my students when that happened. So, yes, I took to the streets and, and, and uh, everything has changed instantly. Like the level of fear was very high because you, people got caught between the urge to be part of that driving force to change what's happening in Syria, but also the fear of the repercussions of getting caught trying to change that. So most people didn't even tell their parents that they were protesting mm -hmm. or being active online, writing blogs or photographing and filming protests. They didn't want their parents to be aware of their involvement because, because of how fearful was everyone of, of the regime. So yes, I did. I, I, I took part of the protests. I protested. And um, as a result, I got arrested um, twice. And I was like very badly treated in prison. Didn't want to leave after the first time because it's hard to leave home. <laughs> after my first release, I went back home. I went back to school. I, I went back to work. I was quite damaged, but... Uh, I, I didn't want to leave. But then after the second time, it, it, it became very simple. You either leave or you die. And I wanted to live. <laughs> so I, I decided to, to, to leave. And little did I know that it will be the last time that I'll ever see home. And that was back in, I think, June, July 2012. I got the copy of your book sent here to my mum and dad's house because I was not sure where I would be when I pre-ordered it. And um, my mum had a question for you about this time. She started reading it before I even got my hands on a copy and got very invested in the story. And uh, she wanted to know, now that you do know the repercussions of those initial actions, you haven't been home since then, the pain that you experienced in the journey that subsequently happened... Would you advise young Hassan at that time any differently? Would you have done anything any differently? I would have been more careful, yes. I would have still protested and I would have still gone, on, on, gone out on the streets and walked in the footsteps of millions of other Syrians who were demanding freedom and change and democracy. Definitely, I would, have, I, I, I would do it again and again and again because uh, it's, it's, it's my cause. I'm not going to deny that my actions have really impacted my life negatively not very positively back then and still until now on some level so yes if i would have a chat with hassan 10 years ago i'd be like just be careful <laughs> but 
23-year-old me is very different to 33-year-old me. 23-year-old me, I had this youthful naivete where I believed that, you know, I, I, I can... I can change things and I can do things and I, um, I, I, I shouldn't be quiet. I wouldn't do it the same if it were to happen now. I guess hindsight is a beautiful <laughs> thing, right? And 23-year-old me is also very different from me now. So maybe there's a beauty to that, that yeah. actually, you know, you are exactly where you are now because yeah. of all of those yeah. steps. So yeah, we really go with you in the book as you, you suffer in prison in Syria, the pain and the fear that you feel, you know, even after you've been released and that decision that you eventually make to leave. You know, I appreciate that I've kind of dropped you straight back into this time in this conversation and I appreciate you for kind of going there with me again, but I just feel like it's so important as the reader and also, you know, for the listeners of this podcast to recognise themselves actually in you each step of the way. And I think that's what's so powerful is that we go with you on those decisions and you speak to a lot of the questions that people might have about why you leave, choices that you make along the way. And I wonder if you would mind like going back to, yeah, the, that decision that you eventually took to leave Syria and, and what happened um, next. It was a very tough decision because... <sighs> Because of the lottery of birth, <laughs> I didn't have a very good passport. <laughs> so anyone who is born in a country where you don't have access to a good passport that enables you to travel, you pretty much live in a... You, you, I mean, you live in the same country or you visit one or two in your lifetime and that's it. And that's basically what happened to me before I left. I, I've only been to Lebanon and Saudi. Mm -hmm. And my home country, Syria. So it was hard to understand the world beyond Syria. <laughs> I mean, it was hard to also accept that there is anything that exists beyond Syria because I couldn't travel. I mean, I would have liked to travel back then. You know, when any young Brits, when they turn 17 or 18, they take a gap year and they travel mm -hmm. around the world because they have a good passport. And you take that for granted. You take that for granted, of course. I didn't have that, so I... Uh, it was it was difficult. I did, I was like, where do I even go? So I, similar to millions of Syrians, I did what what my friends and I say we did the round, and the round is basically going to Lebanon, Egypt, Turkey, UAE, or like Qatar, and like trying your luck. So I did that. I I, I just got in a car and I went to Lebanon because it was close and I could enter without applying for a visa. It was hard to say goodbye to everyone. It was hard to, to pack a bag because I, I, I write about this with details, but um, packing a bag, like how do you, how do you pack 25 or, or 24 years of your life in a single suitcase? You know, it's, uh, it's <laughs> what, what do you take? <laughs> and saying, saying goodbye to family, knowing very well that you may not see them ever again it was it was a very emotional day and i still remember it to this to this day but yeah i got in a car and i went to lebanon and um it it sucked it was really bad <laughs> i was i was in a very bad state i had gone through so much in the years before leaving and i was away from family and family to us means a lot. Like, mm -hmm. you know, family is, is, is everything. 
it was diff- it was hard it was hard it's not it's not it's not an easy thing to do and i i keep saying like if what happened didn't happen i would never have left like i would have liked to travel i would have liked to visit other countries but syria was the country where i lived and i didn't have an expiry date on my id card since then everywhere i live i have an expiry date on my id card <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't the easiest decision, but again, you have to weigh your options. And I, I wanted to live a peaceful and safe life, and made the decision to leave. Along that journey from Lebanon and onwards, I think your story really speaks to the question of. And I say this in inverted commas, like, why don't people stay in the first safe country that mm. they arrive to? And, and again, you explain very clearly what the situation was for you in each country and how and why you decided to continue and you decided to keep moving and you decided to eventually make the journey to the UK. Mm. For me, the most emotional and powerful and impactful moments of anyone's story ever was the moment that you you landed in the UK. I know we're, <laughs> we're jumping, um, but again, I encourage people to, to read the book and read the story. But it was actually before I read the book that I first became familiar with that moment. It was in um, the BBC documentary Exodus that you were a part of and that your story was a part of because you actually documented that whole journey, yeah, yeah. right? And that moment... Honestly, it's stuck in my mind ever since I saw it because the moment that the plane lands at Heathrow <laughs> Airport, right, and the announcement comes on and says, you know, welcome to Heathrow Airport, the time is, the <laughs> temperature outside is, and, and the emotion on your face, you know, it's it's so palpable and it's like it gives me goosebumps to even think about it. You're filming yourself from from below, right? And I wonder if you can speak to us a little bit about your memory of that moment and what you kind of been through to to get to that point. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, to give you a bit of context, that moment happened after three months of traveling across Europe to get to the UK, and th- I mean, three very long months of of sleeping rough and not eating properly and uh just a level of anxiety and fear and and not knowing if we're ever going to make it or not three months of, of of hiding in lorries and and running away from the police and um starting fires to to to, to, to cook something to mm. eat it it was quite Keep rough warm. yeah to stay warm to find shelter to, to find a spot in the park to live where there's no dog poo. <laughs> so it was, it, it was really hard. It was really, it was a tough journey. So the, the, that moment when I finally got here and as you perfectly described it, I, the, the, the plane landed and the, the, the pilot had announced that we, we made it to, to, to England. It was such a relief. Like finally, you know, like I've worked so hard to get here. And not only I was worried about myself, but like I was also really feeling for my family who who were with me on that journey for three months, not physically, but mentally. Because mm. my, my mom and dad and my sisters and my brother, they 
every day like they were checking on me like have you made it what happened where are you so to finally you know get to the place where i always wanted to get and not worry about you know where to go next because this is where i want to settle it was it was it was such a joyful moment it was a it was an incredible moment which was followed by another moment <laughs> where, where I landed in Heathrow, I'm like, now, now, what do I do? <laughs> what now? Another chapter begin. <laughs> but no, and, and, and legally, all I had to do is to go to the border control and say, listen, I want to claim asylum, and um, <laughs> and I remember like standing in the queue, and it was my turn, and I just couldn't say the words because, like, technically, that would be the the first time I claim asylum, so it would be the first time that I'm an asylum seeker. Before of that moment, I was a uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like to, to to get too hung up on the on the terms, but when I was traveling, I was a traveler, or as they say in the news, a migrant or an illegal migrant, illegal, which yeah. which I, I think is rubbish. But uh, and yeah, that second I will be an asylum seeker, and it was a moment that I never ex- imagined in my life that it would happen. I never, never, ever growing up imagined that one day I'm going to be standing in Heathrow Airport claiming asylum. Never in my life. So it was a really hard. It was incredibly difficult to to say the words, and then the border control officer, to his credit, was very nice. He basically clocked. So he's like, "What's what's the story?" I said, "Well, I've been traveling three months, and I just flew in on a fake Bulgarian passport." He was like, "Oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> oh dear." <laughs> from 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 that moment, it was a natural process of screening and an interview, and um, six months later, I was granted political asylum. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I know you've skipped quite quickly through that journey and I kind of did that on purpose because I think that there's so much that I want to talk to you about since then, right? And life in the UK and, and what that's looked like <laughs> for you because it's been so incredible what you've achieved in Thanks. these <laughs> years. And uh, I just want to go back to the fact that like throughout that journey, you always had it in you to document it, mm. right and from the beginning at high risk and at high expense like you 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 filmed it and that footage you know as I say um had such an impact on me and, and many many others who saw it um on that BBC documentary and has now become you know also your book what do you hope that your story and everything that happened to you and sharing it with people will achieve why do you think that telling this story is so important i mean we used to communicate in stories thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of years of years ago that's how we used to communicate stories are they're they're incredibly important and they help us to understand the world they help they help us to to make sense of the world they help us to make sense of 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 bigger of of a of a, of a big crisis like the Syrian crisis or like the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. A simple, like one story can, can, can affect you in a way that no amount of reading articles or watching the news can affect you. And I've, I used to tell stories for a living when I was a teacher, <clears throat> but I never imagined that there will be a day when I would tell my own story. But I was very adamant on telling my story because of what happened to me, because of my experience. My story is in, in a way is my, is my weapon although I don't really like the word, but uh, I mean, we could, we should live in a world where stories are, are the only weapons. <laughs> that would be a good I'd world. Like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Telling my story gives me agency, you know? It's G- also your power, right? Exactly. It's my power. It gives me a seat at the table. 
and I don't want people to speak for me. You know, I, I, I worked so hard on myself to learn English. I worked incredibly hard to get here and to get to a, to a stage in my life where I have the privilege of getting a book deal because getting a book deal is a privilege. Not, not everyone is getting a book deal. That didn't come from nothing. It, it took hours and days and months and, and years of, of campaigning and working with people and telling my story. And, uh, and when, it gets, when I got to a level where I got offered to write a book and I got a book deal, I was like, damn right I want to do it, you know, because I felt like I, for so many years, I felt like I had no voice. Or I had a voice, but it was hijacked. It's a better way of putting it. And, you know, when I can write a book and, which has my name and my co-writer's name, I have total control on what to say. In, in a way, it's not just my story, it's my, also my witness statement. Because I, I was a witness to war crimes. And I was a witness to some incredibly sad moments and I was a witness to people dying but I was also a witness to, to happiness and joy and so for all the reasons mentioned I felt like I wanted to share my story do I regret it absolutely not since I've published the book I'm not gonna I'm not exaggerating but I may have received around 3,000 messages and emails from people who said, I read the book and in a way it changed my life. And this is what it's all about. All my work is about impact. I want to do meaningful work, where it can inspire people, encourage people to do good things in life. And uh, I, I wrote the book hoping that my story would do just that. Surely it sure did that for me. And, you know, I, I know you and I felt like I had a, a handle on the story, but reading the book made me see myself in you even more, like that every step of along the way, I thought, what would I do in that situation? Or that could have been me or like, we're the same age or, you know, there was many times where I, I, I wasn't just reading it, I was feeling it and, and I think that that's when you really feel impassioned about a, a, an issue or a cause when like you actually feel that emotion kind of viscerally in your body. Mm, you mm. Know? I'm not doing a very good job <laughs> <are>. of uh, <laughs> explaining what I mean. You, you definitely are. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, um, it's empathy, basically. Mm -hmm. And I read somewhere that vulnerability is the gateway to empathy. And I wanted to be vulnerable in my book. <laughs> I gave myself the permission to be vulnerable in my book because I desperately wanted people to walk in my footsteps. It, you know what you just said? That's exactly what I wanted to happen. I wanted people to, to think, what would they do? You know, I wanted people to ask themselves, what would they have done if they were in that situation? There's evidence from, from by the way, from, uh, from science that when you read a story, you can connect to it. Our brains can connect through, through a story. And that's, that's what must have happened to you while reading it or reading any other story. You, you, you're connecting. You're connecting on a level which is scientifically proven. You know, you're, you're like, you're there. You are, you're with me on, along the way. And, and 
I worked so hard on on making that achievable and I'm glad it you connected to it. <laughs> it works. It works for sure. I think I even posted a quote from your book that kind of sums this up. You said, I can personally testify to the fact that conquering prejudice is all about education and people are afraid of what they don't understand. And that's another thing in the book. You come to understand all of those decisions that you make and, and then you can make an informed decision, you know, but <laughs> actually that's why I think that everybody should, should read this and, and read your story and it should be in schools because <laughs> how could people feel prejudice when they actually do fully understand yeah. the reasons and the story? And, and, I, and, I, came, and I came to that conclusion based on my personal experience because I was very honest about who I was and my beliefs and my ideas bef 10 years ago. I had some very questionable views, which I was very honest about. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I wanted to be honest about it because I, I wanted to basically write a, a how-to or a guide on conquering prejudice using my story or my personal story as a, as a sample. Um, because mm -hmm. I, I used to be racist. I used to be homophobic. I, I, you know, I had some really awful views. But then, I mean, I, I explained why I had these views. Um, and not to cut myself any slack, but I, I had to give the, the context. And then I, I wrote what changed those views. And, and as a result of changing these views, who was who the person who I've become? <laughs> yeah, and you know, we're all always learning and we can only do our best until yeah. we know better and then we do better, right? And like that you were very open about and you're very open about a lot in the book mm. and very candid and, you know, and real about everything including like romantic relationships and like <laughs> my mum already asked you this around dinner around the dinner table but I was curious about whether you were nervous about it being published and whether you had pe certain people in your mind reading it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like people I, that you would rather not read it I I was very honest I wrote about I wrote about the first time I had sex, which is completely irrelevant to like the journey that I've done. <laughs> but to me, but it's, part, it's relevant to your life. But it's relevant to my life, and it's also it's also very important. Like I'm I'm not writing a refugee story. I'm writing a human story, mm -hmm. and I think sex is part of a human story, and I think r romance is part of a human story, and I think all of these details that I mentioned about for the first time I had an alcoholic drink is part of the human story. Mm -hmm. As someone who lived in a very conservative and a traditional society, and now is living in a very liberal society, that transition how it affected me, and who who was the person. Who, who, who was Hassan 10 years ago and who was Hassan this time? I wanted to write about food. I wanted to write about sex. I wanted to write about music. I wanted to write about these details really meant to me. The only people who I was worried were my parents, my mom and dad. Now my mom said, when I, the day I told my parents that I got a book deal and they were like incredibly happy for me, my mom said, I'm just gonna let you know, I'm never gonna read your book. And I was like, never ever, she was like, never. Never, ever. And I was like, on some level, I was a bit sad, <laughs> disappointed. But on another level, I was like, maybe it's not a bad thing after all. <laughs> um, I was very nervous um, when it came to my dad because I, 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 had a, I had a complicated relationship with my dad. Growing up, I never had a chat with him. We never talked. He was very supportive and loving and caring. But I always feared my dad. So... Until the day I was writing the book, I was like, this is going to shame him. Uh, so a, a week before publication, I had a very emotional FaceTime chat with my dad. 
and I explained to him, not in details, but briefly, some of the details in the book. He asked, why are you exposing yourself? I said, I'm not exposing myself. It is important for me to talk about these things because I, in a way I find it cathartic. And uh, he cried, I cried. And then he got a copy of the book. There was a book fair in Sharjah where they live in the UAE. And he got a copy and he read the first two chapters and then he put it down. And I'm hoping he'll pick it up again because I, I would really like him to read it. I, I would... I would like him to know who I am because I lived a double life with my parents. There's Hassan in, around my parents and there's Hassan who is not around my parents. And uh, I, would, I would really like him to get to know me better, basically. It sounds like the process of writing the book and having that conversation <laughs> beforehand, it's already potentially brought you closer. Yeah, it, it, it did. It did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brought those two versions of Hassan yeah. a little bit <laughs> closer together. <laughs> Yeah, it did, in some way, yeah. Did you always know that you had this book in you? Since I got here, a number of people told me that I should write a book. <laughs> and I I was like, no, I don't want to, because I've already shared... I didn't want to write the book initially because I was featured in Exodus. And I felt like I've already I've already shared my story and I want to give space to other people to share their stories. But then I realized that the journey to get here, which was what's featured in, in Exodus, is just 10% of the story. You know, the story is much bigger than that. Especially now at a time where, politically speaking, the level of anti-migrants and anti-refugees is, is on the rise and, and, and there's so much hate and misunderstanding and ignorance around refugees and migrants. So I was like, yeah, if my story can challenge one person or five people and make them ch think about the topic differently, then that is success for me. This is why, you know, I think it's important to nod to your journey in this episode of the podcast, but it's definitely not what defines mm. you. There's so much more. Exactly. Um, <laughs> 83,000 words <laughs> more. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and whereas we may have seen Turkey to Greece crossing in films or on the news, what we haven't necessarily seen or heard or read before is, is, is you and your story. But telling your story comes with with the other side that yeah it's it's amazing as you said that it's it's cathartic and it's important and it's impactful but it also potentially jeopardizes your opportunity to ever go back to Syria or yeah. was that something that you had to kind of weigh up um before kind of putting your voice out there yeah I mean it comes with a responsibility and it comes also I mean I I even before writing the book I technically technically can never go back to Syria as long as the Assad regime is in power mm -hmm. Writing the book sealed the deal, <laughs> and I, in a in a strange way, I'm I'm okay with that. Like I would really love to go back to Damascus one day. I would love to. I would love like if 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 it's ever safe to go back, I I would love to go back. But I stopped having the urge to go back. Four or five years after leaving, oh my god, I was always reminiscing and and you know, constantly having dreams about going back and like going down the memory lane and remembering all the good times and all the nice places and all the parks, all the streets and all the gigs. And But I don't have that anymore. 
you know, I, 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 my friends and I, when we would talk about home and we would say, oh yeah, I miss the, I miss the jasmine scents because Damascus is very known for his jasmines and I miss the streets of Damascus. I, I no longer miss them. I think because it's been too long. I think, I think because it's been 10 years, but also because I, I think home is the place that offers you security and peace of mind and Damascus, when I think about it right now, it makes me really anxious. It, it, it to, to me, the country is triggering. So I don't have that urge to go back anymore. Like, how can I long for a home that never gave me any of my rights? It's, 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 again, it's really sad. I wish, I, wish, I wish Damascus gave me what London gave me. So yeah, I wrote the book knowing very well that I will never be able to go back. And in a way I'm okay with that. I, I, I used to say that I am uprooted because I left my home country, but now I would like to say that I have roots in many places and one of them is London. Citizen of the world. <laughs> and, and, and since you've, you've lived in, in the UK, really incredible, magical things have, have happened, right? <laughs> and, you know, you've met some pretty amazing people, some of whom are pretty well known. And, you know, as I say, like, it's hard to, to put into words now, like how much you've achieved in this time. But it was also clear in the book that that wasn't without struggle. I'd love to talk a little bit about your life since you made it to the UK and and how what integration has, has looked like for you and how much you've changed as a person. I mean, again, it's a huge conversation, <laughs> but yeah, top up, time for a top up. Would you like some, <laughs> that quick, would yeah. you like some green tea? <laughs> I would love some green tea in my green cup. <laughs> I was actually just thinking that you read my mind. <laughs> It's, it's a big question, but it's an important question because a lot of people think that the journey is over once you get to your destination. But then once you get to your destination, you actually embark on, a, on another journey, which is equally difficult. I mean, I came here nearly fluent in English. So I, I met a lot of like very well-connected people who helped me find jobs and, and find somewhere to live. I lived with two amazing families that similar to your parents, your incredible parents have given me a spare room to live in. I had a good start, you know, I, there was a lot of support, um, which was incredibly helpful because when I got here and I got over the excitement of getting to England and, and then I was like, then now what? <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> I forgot about normal life. I forgot about like preparing a resume and, and looking for jobs and, 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 and dating all of that because I, for so long I was just traveling and I, I forgot about how normal life was. And and then when I got here, all my mental health problems surfaced and I had no understanding or no knowledge or no education of mental health. So it, it, there were so many questions that I didn't have answers for. But slowly, you know, I started it, it, integrating, integrating wasn't that difficult purely because I could speak the language. And that's mainly why I wanted to come to England, because I can speak the language. 
I had a very unusual journey through Britain because of appearing in the film and going to all these events and publicly speaking about the refugee crisis about Syria and sharing my story, you know, had took me places. I got to travel all around the UK and most of Europe for work. It was good, but it was also, <laughs> it was really hard because I, I got diagnosed with complex PTSD and, and a symptom of PTSD is, um, is survival's guilt. So anytime I was in a good situation and I was doing something really good and I was like in a room with very influential people and, you know, being, feeling productive, I would instantly feel guilty because I would think of everyone back home who didn't have the chance to be in that room as I have. So, yeah, I had to navigate my mental health problems and also I, I had to navigate Britain, which I found very different to what I expected it to be. But I would say that I'm, I am very lucky and I, again, I'm, it was luck and hard work. It wasn't just luck. I was going to say, <laughs> was it luck? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was luck. I mean, it was, it was luck, but it was also hard work. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to, I, I was also like going through a career change because I used to be an English teacher and then I'm not going to teach English to English people, <laughs> you know? I, so I, I got into filmmaking and I, I used to do photography as a hobby, but then I started doing professionally and, uh, Looking back at it, I mean, I'm, I'm quite proud of what I had achieved, but it wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't supported by the people that I've met here, giving me a, a room to sleep in for a whole year rent free, helped me get to where I am right now. And all my friends who like, you know, took me home Christmas or I went traveling with them and their parents. It was great because I was away, I was away from my family and I wanted to be around other families. So it was really the people who I've met here who, who were an incredibly positive part of where I am right now. And they helped me get here, definitely. <laughs> I love that. And I think I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this term integration. And I think that we put a lot of emphasis on, on people who arrive uh, to the UK um, to integrate, but actually... How can you integrate into a society that has its doors closed, right? Yeah. The only way for integration to work is if it's a two-way street and that you meet in the middle and that the host community or the people who live in the UK, for example, are willing to actually welcome. Yeah. And, and that's the only way it's going to work. And help me integrate. Of, yeah, yeah. Put of all, putting all of the emphasis on the person who is integrating i think is 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 doing a disservice and a disjustice and it's not it's not going to work that way it needs to be everybody who who actively takes a role 100 percent, and also like the, the the notion of integration and as you said as you rightly put it that putting pressure on people to integrate that understanding that some of the people who come to the uk have left their war-torn countries and been traveling for two years so the level of trauma that they they must have before while, when they get here is is incredibly high so imagine getting here and then straight away people like integrate integrate mm. integrate give me a second like you know, give me time give me to, a breathe. Chance to breathe yeah give me a chance to heal to to breathe i only traveled for three months when i got here i was exhausted mm. physically and mentally let alone if i was an unaccompanied minor who who left uh, sudan and traveled across africa 
to, and then the Mediterranean and then I slept rough in Cali for a year mm-hmm. and then I got here and then I saw Nigel Farage on the beach yelling at me and then I, I went online and saw people tweeting rubbish about me and then I someone came like you have to integrate mm. no <laughs> I, I fully support the notion that people who should who come here should speak English I I'm 100% pro that and I think people should speak English when they come here for the mere fact that speaking the, the country's language will help you stand up for yourself and will help you have a voice. People naturally do that when they come here. They start, you know, they start l- l- learning the language and everyone I've met speaks English better than English people who travel abroad, who not naturally don't speak a second language. <laughs> That's it. Our expectations are so skewed. It's like if you have been in the UK for a few months as an asylum seeker or as an immigrant and you don't speak English, then there's a judgment. But if you move to Holland, for example, and you do speak Dutch after like 10 years, people are amazed. Yeah, oh, wow. Like, Bless wow. You. Like, it's like, hang on, the expectation is yeah. so vastly different and yeah sometimes I think about like imagine if I was 14 years old and dropped into a village in Eritrea where they speak to Grinya which is like so different from English starting from your ABC again right and in a family and a society that doesn't speak my language at all I just just take a minute to actually think about how that that might feel or that might be (laughs) for Mez for example there wasn't even the option of like Google Translate. We really had to start from the very beginning and mm. he learned very, very quickly. But yeah, like give people a, a little <laughs> bit of, of leeway and empathy. And one of the things that we haven't even spoken about yet, which is like such a huge part of, of your story since you've been here, is the work that you did as a hospital cleaner in a COVID ward. I'm interested to hear from you why you think this is such an important part of your story, why it evoked so much reaction in people. I think... That's a good question. Well, it's an important part of my story because it was the first... When COVID happened, it was the first time something that happened in Britain it was the first time that Britain went through in, in th- through a crisis since I've been here. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's fled a crisis, a much worse crisis, I'm not comparing the Syrian crisis to the pandemic, I've, I thought that I was safe in Britain, nothing's going to happen. You know, well, we're not going to go in, in a war. I mean, I don't know, we, we're, we might go on a war with France over fishing, but... Uh, <laughs> I I was like I'm perfectly safe here nothing's gonna happen but then when the pandemic kicked off I was like gosh <laughs> give me a break and there are two part there are two there are two sides of the story there's a side where I was completely losing my mind when the pandemic happened and it was locked down completely like I completely losing my mind and I I felt very claustrophobic and I wanted to regain again some control of the situation and the way to do that was to get out and do something and because it was lockdown, you can't do anything except for running half an hour a day in the, in the park. It, getting a frontline job was a thing. Mm. That was one part. And the second part, as I just was telling you, I, it really feels like home now. And <laughs> like the same reason why I wanted to protest in Damascus and be part of the change and help improve the country for everyone. 
it was the same reason why I took that job because because I am a Londoner and I wanted in my own little community in East London to for the hospital to be functional and and clean and disinfected and I wanted to you know help the people in the community. I think the reason why it affected people is because I am Syrian and I'm also a refugee. I'm not just a Syrian refugee, but I'm Syrian and I am a refugee. And then I took a job as a frontline worker. So that said something about, you know, it said something about people who come here and make Britain their home. And and it, it was during a time where it was a very depressing time. So the story made people happy. I only worked for what, like just over two months at the hospital during the first wave. So I, I'm not taking any credit because there are migrants and refugees who've been on the front line since the pandemic started. And I was incredibly proud and honored to, to bear witness to, 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 to all the people who were working on the front line during that time, risking their lives and their families' lives. But um, the, the reason why this little part was, it's definitely in the book and why is important part of the story because I felt like I've come full circle. You know, six six years ago, I was standing in a queue in Calais waiting to get a jumper or waiting to get some food handed to me by the volunteers. And then six years later, I'm, I am in a hospital cleaning, helping other people, or I'm in our local food bank, you know, handing donations to people. I know a lot of people don't like using military words, but it did feel like a war. And we were in the trenches of this war. <laughs> and I I was never around that many people dying in the past. Never ever. Like I saw so many people die. But but I also saw so many people recover and go back home to their loved ones. Again, I am quite proud of the, the work that I did. It was I mean I I know I was on I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be little cleaning because I think this pandemic proved that hospital cleaners and porters and healthcare assistants, who, if you go to any hospital in the UK, they're mostly migrants. Those jobs to be proved to be very essential. So I, I honestly like, despite it being just over two months, but I was like incredibly proud that I was there. You know, I, 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 I helped my home, my new home. <laughs> So beautiful, we goosebumps all over. And it reminds me of something that you said right at the end of the book about humanity, right? About mm -hmm. that you saw people die and you saw people recover and and what you realized in those moments as people were coming to the end of their life, that the things that superficially divide us, yeah. right? <laughs> Nationality, yeah. race, religion, Wait, gender, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever. All of that is irrelevant. When it comes moments, down to it, yeah. yeah when yeah. you look back on your life and, yeah. and you're nearing the end of it and all you need is love and to be loved and, and the relationships. To be around your around family you. and to be like looked after and to be comfortable. And we are living in a time where there is so much hate and anger and people are shouting and yelling at one another and people are like constantly <laughs> upset and... There's like, if you sometimes social media, I find social media so overwhelming because mm. there, the, you know, <laughs> there's so much anger. 
there is positive anger. There is people. There's there there is there is positive outrage. You know, something happens and like people get angry and then they can correct that correct that wrong thing that happened. You know, but when it's constant, it's really it's, it's draining. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I I wish. I mean, I don't know. I think what I'm trying to say is, again, what you just said, Jazz, is like. We stress a lot about work. We stress about where we're going to go on holiday. We stress about money, what, in the bank. money in the bank or like what car we're driving or what we're wearing and what, all of that. But honestly, like it's good. I mean, it's good to make money, of course, make money and live a comfortable life. But it's not, it's, it's not money that gives you, gives you comfort. It's health, really. So if you're healthy and you've got a roof over your head and you have access to your family, you are living an incredible life. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. You said it well, very well. Um, I wish I had my copy with me because I underlined a lot of it, but I passed it on to Abdelaziz in Belgium because mm. mm. I saw him recently and he was like, oh, I, I really want to read that. So. <laughs> but talking about family, mm. this last month you've been reunited with yes. your family for yes. the first time yes. in years, yes. right? Tell me about that. Tell first, me the story. The first time since 2012. So I saw some of my family members separately, but it was the first time that all of us got together since 2012, since the, the day I left. And it was, gosh, it was so the reason why, I mean, I have to give a bit of context because mm -hmm. we've got <laughs> when time. I, when I posted on, on Instagram, people were like, "Oh, you could have just booked a flight to go and see your family." Well, it doesn't work like that when you have a shitty passport. Yeah, <laughs> if only again, <laughs> like people just, I think, can't see beyond their own. It's yeah. like when people are like, "Well, France is a safe country." It's like, can you not see beyond your own reality, yeah. <laughs> your own experience? Yeah. Like, can you not recognize that maybe someone else's circumstances are different <laughs> to yours? But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it was. It was. It was. Thanks to my friend uh, Josie Norton, who I was having dinner with, and uh, lovely Josie, lovely Josie. <laughs> she, she, um, I was telling her how sad I was because my family is having a reunion and I can't make it. And she said, "Oh well, there is this Global Citizen Forum in the UAE, and I can get you. I can talk to Tally, who can get you an invitation." And I was like, "Great if they can." And then they got me an invitation. And it's, in, it's, it's impossible to get a visa to the UAE on a travel document. Okay. It is impossible. Like, no one has done it. And then I, I explained to them that I have a travel document. And they were like, no, we, we can take care of it. Don't worry. And I was like, you sure? And they said, yes. But I, so I didn't get my hopes up because I, I was like, it's never going to happen. And then four la days later, they sent me the visa. They said, there you go. You can come. And I, <laughs> I, oh my gosh, I was over the moon, honestly, like for three days, I, I was just thinking about that second I'm going to hug my mom and dad, because it, it, yeah, it was playing over and over, like how it's going to play out. And I booked a flight straight away, packed my bag, bought a few gifts, and then straight to Heathrow, booked an Emirates flight. And then I landed in Dubai and then got stuck at the <laughs> airport for nine hours because of my travel document. And then finally managed to, 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 to they, they let me in. Um, Tell me that your parents weren't waiting on the other side. No, they the weren't. Sign so the thing <laughs> the is, nine that, hours. is that because I was so doubtful that I'll make it, I never told my parents. 
No way. So it was a surprise. It was a complete surprise. Oh my God. Oh yeah, of course it was. I saw the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a complete surprise. I told my sister and my nephew and my brother, I said, this is what's going to, so my sister and my nephew were waiting at the airport and then they, so then they picked me and they took me home. My mom and dad, it was like 5 a.m. My mom and dad were sleeping, but they had to wake up for the Fajr for the morning prayer. Mm. And then they were like, Hassan, if they see you straight away, they might like could go bad. <laughs> what do you mean? Like a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, in the morning. so they went in. So all like my sisters were awake, my nephews and my, and my nephew and nieces. So they, 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 they went in and then they woke them up and they said, listen, we don't want you to, to, to freak out, but Hassan is here. And my mom and dad woke up like, what? But we decided to do this because we didn't want to like, sh like you know, Shock cause them a heart attack. <laughs> and then they got up and then I walked to the flat and it was just, it was just the, like, it was one of the best moments of my life. Honestly, like, I know thanks to technology, I can see my mom every day, but it's, it's not the same. It's not the same to, to being, you know, like <laughs> hugging her and like kissing her cheeks or holding her hands. It, it's completely different. And it was, yeah, it was so beautiful. And you know what? Like the first three nights, my mom kept waking up in the middle of the night and coming to my room to see that I was actually there and it wasn't a dream. <laughs> and yeah, it was 24 days of incredibly delicious homemade food, which I've in, like missed a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm a good cook. I cook, but like, it's nothing compa compared to my mom's co cooking. And she had years worth of cooking. Yeah. She was like, she's like, let's make a list. What do you want? <laughs> we just went to the desert, went to the beach, went all these barbecues. And most importantly, we reconnected. A lot has happened in the last, since, since we last saw one another, a lot has happened. And obviously like we, we're updating one another, but We've changed a lot in the past 10 years. So there was so much catching up to do. And uh, I reconnected with my nephew, Zaid, who I love to, 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 to bits. He's like my younger brother. And uh, I, I was like having conversations with my dad. I was like having chats with my mom. I was like, you know, smoking shisha with my sisters. <laughs> oh. Having fun with the babies. <laughs> oh my God, having fun with the babies. The last addition to the family is Ward, baby Ward who looks like he's had several lives before he was born because he looks so wise. He looks like a young, I mean, he looks like a 50-year-old Paul. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the most incredible face. He's so gorgeous and so funny. And I, I'm, I'm surprised he's not gone viral since like... <laughs> I, wanted to start, I wanted to start an Instagram yeah. account for him because every time I posted something on him, people would reply like, oh my God, I love his face. <laughs> he could also be your baby. Yeah. He could definitely yeah, yeah. be your baby. Yeah. He's Strong definitely genes. got a lot of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was the best holiday I've had in a very, very long time. Full heart. Yeah. 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 Gosh, I mean, I family. felt that through Instagram, yeah. <laughs> you know, through the little snippets of Instagram, it like really showed. And um, I'm so happy that Thank you. you had that opportunity. Thank you. And, and I, I hope, I honestly hope anyone, like, I, mean, I, get, I posted it and also I got that sense of like, guilt because <laughs> i i personally know a lot of friends who haven't seen their families mm. in five or six years but then i i don't want to deny myself the joy of being with my family and i can only hope and wish that anyone who's separated from their families to be reunited with them very soon because there's nothing like family mm. nothing ever
Well said. Yeah. Well said. And you being together with your family isn't taking away from anybody else. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> so that guilt, it's a difficult emotion, right? And yeah. one I recognize and that I've kind of grappled with over the years a lot too that all of these things, good and bad and happy and sad and pain and suffering and joy can all exist in one world yeah. together. Yeah. Hassan, is there anything in this kind of current climate with lots of fear, lots of othering that you would uh, like to take this opportunity to kind of share with people? I think a lot of people are tired. I think... It's quite scary out there, you know, our climate is collapsing, world's economies have collapsed as a result of the pandemic, people have lost their jobs, there are wars, man-made crises in several countries, we saw what happened in Afghanistan, Yemen and Lebanon could be on, on the brink of, and a lot of people that I talk to feel overwhelmed and they're not sure how to help or what to do. piece of advice that I, could, I would give is that you know the computer when you have so many tabs open and then it starts lagging? <laughs> I think if you keep just one tab open, it will continue to function. So if you can just pick one cause and really care about it and do something and campaign and, and educate and connect, then that's, that's more than enough. So the best and the worst of humanity, I, I, I witnessed them. It was people coming together, which helped things get better. You said, Jazz, there's a lot of othering, there's our hate, but uh, coming together really helps. <laughs> it does wonders. <laughs> you know, Hassan, you said that very well, and I'm very grateful to be sharing this same tab, this same cause, <laughs> to be on this same mission yeah, together with same. you. <laughs> Talking to you is hugely empowering and thank you and <laughs> thank you likewise absolute pleasure thanks for having me i'd love to know your thoughts on this episode and what you'd like to hear more of in the rest of season six i already have some amazing guests lined up but i'm always open to suggestions and questions to get in touch send me a direct message on instagram at the worldwide tribe other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the worldwide tribe to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or you can donate all the details are in the show notes and in my instagram bio if you enjoyed this episode please share it rate it and leave a review it helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories finally please go and give our amazing sponsor a visit at lovewelcomes.org or lovewelcomes on instagram remember to use the code wwt at checkout for 10 percent off the more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. A big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.